Welcome to the Theology Mom Podcast, hosted by theologian Krista Bontrager. Each week, Krista provides practical teaching to help everyday Christians gain a deeper understanding of their faith. And now, here's Krista. Hello and welcome, everyone. Thank you for joining me for this live stream. I trust that by God's grace, you and your family are doing well. And we um, are going to have a very important and public conversation tonight about policies that impact children, the next generation. I have entitled this episode, The Education mega episode because we are uh, going to really get into it here. It's going to be a little longer than normal, um, but we're going to be talking about three major topics tonight. First, we're going to talk about uh, why I have changed my mind about vouchers. Sometimes they're called education savings accounts. Um, they are rising in popularity among homeschoolers. Um, the state of Arizona passed it statewide recently. In the second part of the show, we're going to be giving some important updates about what's happening in public education. Um, a very interesting link that we've discovered between Planned Parenthood and the public education system. You're not going to want to miss that second half. And in the third part of the conversation tonight, um, we're going to be talking about the next wave. You think critical race theory is, is a hot button issue? Meh. That's passe compared to what we are going to be talking about into the third part of the discussion tonight of what is on the horizon. Some of you might not know this about me, but maybe some of my older followers might, but I've actually been a huge homeschool advocate for 30 years. Um, really started advocating for homeschooler homeschooling before I even had kids. Um, now I do want to encourage all Christians who um, uh, feel called by God to work in the public schools, I see them as missionaries and I want to do whatever I can to uh, help support them. And the, one of the ways that I do that in supporting people, Christians in particular who work in public education, is I want to help them understand the frameworks that are operating in public schools today. And so that's why I do these streams. That's why I spend time researching all this stuff. Last spring, I did a whole stream that I called a crash course on social emotional learning to help with that goal. And I definitely um, have uh, recommended that teaching probably more than any other teaching I've done this year in 2022 uh, to people. And so it's a timely um information in that. But since I've done that broadcast, I've wanted to have a follow-up discussion to keep parents and educators informed uh, about how these issues related to social emotional learning are continuing to, to develop. And so even though, you know, I am a big homeschool advocate and we're going to talk more about that a little bit later, 
I also see the need for having the discussions about what is happening in public education. And I have found a like-minded person with those same sensibilities. Um, I've asked a friend of the ministry, Kelly Ski, to come on and talk to us about these issues. Kelly is an important voice for parental rights when it comes to education. And she's also a very strong sister in the Lord. So um, go follow her on Twitter. I can't wait to bring her voice to you tonight. She's got some amazing information. I'm going to play the first little chunk of our conversation, and then I'm going to come back. And so put your comments, questions in the stream, and we will address those when we come back after we watch the first few minutes of my discussion with Kelly Ski. Here it is. Hey, Kelly, thanks for joining me for this discussion. Uh, why don't you just give us kind of the one minute introduction of who you are and how you got interested in education advocacy? Yeah, well, thanks for having me today. I'm excited to be here. I am such a fan of all that you do. And a um, little bit about how I started. I started just as a parent of two children learning about some new things appearing in their school. And I started researching what was going on and I wanted to figure this out. What is social emotional learning? What are all these concepts? And so throughout the years, we had quite a personal family journey. We live in California and ultimately that led us to not just speak publicly and try and help other parents, but uh, we eventually at the end of 2019 spring semester, we left the public school system and decided to give homeschooling a try. So that first year, fall of 2019 was our first year homeschooling. But in the course of this journey, um, I've had a lot of tools in my toolbox that I've learned a lot of reading and research daily for the past six years. And so now my effort is to try and help other parents who find themselves in the same situations that our family found themselves in and to um, do my best to inform and equip and help. So, so in the beginning, if I understand correctly, I think you said in 2016, you kind of started this journey. You thought, you know, first I'm going to try to tackle it as a public school mom. I'm going to try to, you know, work within the system. I'm going to try to opt out. I'm going to try to be careful, but then eventually you migrated into homeschooling. But what I love about your story is that you've continued to advocate for public school. You've stayed involved on that side of it in terms of education for parents. Um, I, I think that's the way to go because I think that public schools traditionally have been a very trusted institution. And so I think there's something inside of us that wants to find this redemptive path. But ultimately, that might not work for our child, but we might want to stay involved in the public conversation to advocate for children down the road. Is that kind of how you've been thinking about it? Yeah, very much so. I mean, when I started, I didn't know how to go to a school board meeting. I didn't even know who to talk with about concerns over curriculum. And I've learned all these many, many tools along the way of navigating this. And I really, 
I empathize for parents in my community, beyond my community who are in that same situation. What is this? What is going on? How do I respond? Can I opt my child out of this? And so many more questions come in. And so it's just an opportunity to carry this on because when you go through something that's challenging or difficult, which it was, there was a lot of pain in much of our journey, but in the midst of that, it compelled me and our family to want to help others who are going through those same situations because it's, I have a huge heart for the people and the parents who are impacted by this. And yeah, yeah. that's good. And I think that as Christian parents, you know, we understand that our primary job is leadership in the life and discipleship of our children. And so whether we're in public school, private school, homeschool, our mindset should always be one of I'm the leader in my child's world, in their education, in their worldview, shaping. Um, That's something that, in our opinion, you know, all Christian parents need to be up to that, no matter who they're kind of employing, if you will, to assist with the education. We as Christian parents never should have a mindset of, I just hand my child over to an educational environment. And so that's kind of the guiding principle here. Now we're going to share some things that are opinions about things of maybe how we work that out or, or how we walk in that. And that might vary from family to family, depending on their particular situation. But I think is a guiding principle for the conversation we want to establish at the beginning, you know, the Christian idea of parents are in charge of their children. Absolutely. I, I think that's, that's one of the greatest challenges that I see abroad is that we have had this trust in the public school. And even when I was growing up, I remember, um, being able to, even during the school day, leave class and go to what was called release time. And we had a Bible study and Mm -hmm. today so much has changed, but it was changing even back then. And it really is, um, our, our current education system, I believe is discipling children in a completely alternate worldview and ideology than what the Christian home and the Christian family is um, the the value system and, and what we believe. It's completely uh, contrary to that. And so it's important to be aware of that. And yes, absolutely. Um, who is discipling your child? Um, so, yeah. Yeah, that's, that's, that's so good because um, I think you said something very important there that we want to be discipling our children, but the way that the public school has shifted in, in many cases, because we're going to get letters, Kelly, I always get them. There's 10 people living in rural Pennsylvania right now that are going to write in and say, well, this, we don't see this here. We don't, we don't see these things here. Okay. But, but just, just wait. Like it, the system is coming. This is like a fungus and it's, it's growing everywhere. So, um, but what we want to say is that 
the, the way that things are going to be set up, and this is what we're going to talk about in this broadcast today, is a fundamental, fundamentally different way of discipling and shaping our children. And so we really have to look at these issues from a worldview standpoint. We can't just think about, um, you know, how things were when we were a kid. Um, this is, this is a, a different kind of a world. So uh, let's get into educational savings accounts. That's the first topic that I want to cover because I have been a proponent of decentralizing education um, for 30 years. I mean, I've been talking about this before there was social media. I, I'm, I, I am not a fan of a big uh, federal government guided way of going about education. I am for decentralization and localization, um, beginning with the parents. So educational savings accounts, why don't we talk about what those are and, you know, the potential for those to break the monopoly of, you know, some of these more centralized education solutions. It's an idea of trying to introduce competition and kind of break the monopoly of uh, the federal government being the only ones in the education business. And I would say even kind of breaking the monopoly of teacher unions. So let's, let's start with that discussion. Arizona recently passed ESAs for their whole state. Other states are considering them. Tell, tell us what a ESA is. Let's start with that. Well, it's an it's an education savings account. And really the marketing of this is they say, and I, I will preface this by saying I used to be such a proponent of school choice, it's called, and I would pass out flyers for this. And I have had my opinion shift. Um, As have I. So we can talk right. about the shift. I used right. to be a big proponent of something like ESAs. I've kind of changed yes. my mind about it, but we can, we can get into right. that. Yeah. So they, the marketing of these ideas is to have the money follow the child. And what we're often told is that our taxpayer dollars are currently funding a monopoly system that floods our funds into the public school system. And that this is a winning solution where um, we are told that now we are able to choose where those funds go. Uh, an example is often given by school choice proponents, and they talk about um, how those with an EBT card, for example, are able to choose the grocery store where they buy their groceries. We used um, to call EBT cards, we used to call them food stamps. Right. It's, it's a government subsidy for low-income people. So that's that's the analogy. Exactly. Okay. And so the idea of having the money follow the child now would mean that uh, parents in the state that these laws pass would be able to take those government funds and be able to utilize them for education. And um, so that's the basis. Do you want, I, I can, yeah, let me know if you want me okay. to- keep going. No. Yeah. Uh, let's keep talking about it a little bit more because um, now that Arizona has passed this on a statewide level, they're really the, I think the first state that is trying to implement this on a statewide level. I think the idea of it 
is that the money follows the child. So let's say there, I don't know how much the ESA is for Arizona, but I'm just going to pick an arbitrary number. Let's say it's $3,500. And that money then goes to whatever school that the child goes to. So if the parents decide our local public school is failing, has failing grades in math and reading, I want better for my child. I'm willing to drive across town to this other school that's doing better. That money follows the child and can go to that school. And so that you're through introducing competition, hopefully failing schools will begin to perform better because they want to compete with these other schools over here and recruit more students. That that's kind of my understanding of, of how introducing competition will help and, and how these, um, these savings accounts would work. Do I, am I on the right track with that? Yeah, absolutely. And a lot of times um, school choice proponents also say that in doing so they believe and they theorize that this will obviously remove students from the public school. And therefore uh, they say that this will also remove power from the teachers unions because um, teachers will inevitably either leave the public school system or perhaps leave the union. But um, I have, uh, you know, for example, with Arizona, um, it is important for those listening to know that um, those who are using the ESA funds, perhaps they're, they're homeschooling, they're not supposed to be um, in any way, shape or form necessarily considered a homeschooler in a technicality. Um, the other thing is that when the funds come from the government, the, the government is now required to observe that the child is being educated because now they've you know taken the taxpayer dollars that would normally go to a government accountable public school system and now it's going somewhere else so the state board of education and the government does have certain requirements that may involve whether it's state testing to ensure the child's learning or an audit system or uh, observation by the State Board of Education, but all of those things uh, play into that. And then at, at least in Arizona, but I believe there's other states who are either considering this program or already using this, it's called Class Wallet. Um, and so that's a way that's, that funds are dispersed and that's perhaps another topic for another day, but um, using a digital wallet and that class wallet program, um, anybody can look class wallet up and read a little bit on their website, but it's certainly uh, an, a whole other realm of a, an interesting topic in and of itself, but okay. yeah. All right. So here we're starting to get into why I've changed my mind a little bit about this issue. Um, now, when I was homeschooling um, back in the day, I was homeschooling my children for several years. We went through a charter school that um, charter schools are basically public schools, um, but they're just structured a little differently. And in this case, our charter school uh, was consisted of all homeschooling families. And we had a stipend 
that we could spend for um, approved materials and curriculum and, and this sort of a thing. Um, now, when they implemented the Common Core standards, maybe 10, 12 years ago, that's when I started seeing, oh, there's consequences to taking this money because then I had to comply with their testing standards for Common Core. And so there was like this kind of illusion of accepting this government money that I could still kind of maintain my independence because we were in this charter school um, with all these homeschoolers. And when, com when they started introducing Common Core and it came even into the charter school, that's when I pressed the eject button and went as an independent homeschooler so I didn't have to report to anybody. Um, and that taught me a really valuable lesson because um, I started to see when you take government money, there's always going to be strings attached. So to go back to our, our um, food stamps example for, for a minute, um, people who are on the quote unquote welfare system will tell you that there's a lot of strings to getting that money. And once you get into that system, you lose your independence really quick. And in order to continue to get those checks, you have to have certain compliances. So this kind of leads me to why I've changed my mind about ESAs is that the strings that are attached from the government. Now, I know there's people that are going to write in and they're going to say, yeah, but there's still freedom to teach whatever you want. And you can go to, you know, you can take this money to private schools. My question is, yeah, that might be true right now, but how long is it going to be before those schools have to comply to the government standards and to some of the things we're going to talk about later in this show? How long is it going to be before those things must be embedded in the school in order to get that money? Um, I don't know if you have any comment about that or want to talk about why you've changed your mind about ESAs. Well, when I was passing out flyers, it was interestingly enough, a lot of homeschool moms who I met and they said, why are you supporting school choice? And they talked with me about the concerns of these strings attached. And it's right. I, even if you do, you know, going back to an earlier comment in our interview, if you live in a state that you're not seeing all these things, particularly in your school, I would say that it is important to look at these things as a phased in model. And that's the same with school choice. First, right now you have the, the battle over whether or not, you know, there can be school choice, but then what does end up being the future challenge is curriculum choice and all of those regulations that follow and what, state boards of ed and legislators have the, the ability to pass and, and add on really is all the testing, like, like you were talking about. And I've 
seen and been aware that there are some testing that incorporates ideology into the test and the questions yeah. themselves. So that's important for parents to know. And it's also important, you know, just like you were built, if you were to build a whole new development, a community development, you set the foundation first, you know, you have your engineers come in, you start to build a section here and a section there, and then you have the playground added into place. And it's kind of like that analogy of a frog in the water with the heat slowly turning up. And even though there's things that people may not see as intensely as this state we live in, in California, mm -hmm. I, I have seen ideo ideological concerns in every single state. And so if anybody, you know, at the end wants to email me and, you know, share about a particular district, I've been able to hop on with different people, look briefly into their school and, you know, the concerns are right there. Yeah. Um, and so, yeah, for me, it was first these homeschooling moms, and then it was several articles. And then I was encouraged to start asking questions of the school choice proponents, some of the main ones, and I wasn't getting my questions answered. And then, you know, to me, when you're a proponent of something and you're not answering those questions, um, that always just kind of makes me second guess. Um, so for, for my part, watching the progression of all kinds of things, not only that, but also seeing that there are those who are from a different political perspective entirely that are very supportive of school choice as well. Um, there's, there's this thought out there that it's just a um, very conservative belief system to support school choice, but in actuality, it's not always been that. And, um, you know, different people in, in the school choice effort, um, they absolutely are, you know, they're, they're not just conservative. Some are very much not conservative, very yeah. much on the op opposite side. So I think that's important to take into consideration. Yeah, I think that for us, what I've kind of migrated into is the foundational thing that we need to understand, again, is the parents ought to be taking the lead in whatever happens with the child. And so our foundational principle ought to be that of freedom and freedom to teach what we want and, and freedom to do that without interference from the government. And so in order to preserve that freedom, you know, we might have to, uh, to rethink our mindset a bit of um, the government must be involved in my child's education. Must it? Like, let's think about that for a minute. Like must, you know, well, what are the pros and cons of that? Like, and how much involvement do we want them to have? And um, that freedom is um, really, I think what I've shifted into is like the foundational principle and what, what must I do to preserve that, that freedom? Because when you go down the road of ESAs, there, there can be an appeal to that. Um, just like, I think that, you know, the welfare system was probably well-intentioned in the sixties to bring people out of poverty, but now we have created a system of multi-generational welfare 
and people can't get off of it because they think the government must be involved in in that effort. And so we have to we have to really think carefully about this. Now, some people would would come back to me and and I've had these people write to me, you know, well, my child has learning disabilities or some other disabilities. I need the public schools. I need those resources. So ESAs are a good thing. Don't please don't, you know, pan those. But I think we we have to think principally about things too. And I, I guess my hope is that um free markets in the education realm would rise up and uh open schools to help those those children as well. That maybe we need to rethink like do, must we be um dependent on the government to fulfill this need. I don't know if you want to comment on any of that. I said a lot, but no, I think I think I I'm in complete agreement because we're we're really needing that creative side and I know there's some organizations that are right now working to try and implement um K through 12 curricula that's free um where people could start these kinds of homeschool centers in churches and, and different, there's definitely right now, a lot of people are aware of this situation and they're trying to strategize and think through all of that. And I mean, even myself, we had a homeschool community that we relied upon at the beginning of the fall of 2019, our first school year of homeschooling, and then COVID happened. So, um, things were definitely different, even for homeschoolers. And then once things were opening up again, we one by one lost everyone in our homeschool community because they moved out of state. And so in the recent months, I was thinking we really need this homeschool community. And so I just decided to post it out there on social media and surprisingly held a meeting at a park and over 20 moms came. And then the next Friday we had another meeting. These are all homeschooling families. Another 20 moms came. And right now this homeschool community group in our area has approximately 70 families and it's growing. And all we're doing is really just um, working and all of us moms are planning field trips, classes. We're planning um, a spring science fair. I'm working on that right now. Um, and it's just an opportunity, you know, PE all, they have a teen leadership club that recently held an ice cream social, um, for the kids. So there's lots of ways, but a lot of times I I realized even myself, I thought I could sit there and be sad that we don't have this community anymore, or I can try and take initiative and see what I can do and who else would join me in that effort. And so a lot of times if, if there's, I, I empathize with the need for those resources. And so perhaps, you know, some of these different organizations, or maybe if there's a parent out there that really advocates for their child, perhaps they might even be able to partner with, an organization that cares about these education initiatives that can also help um, and work together and facilitate brainstorm those ideas because we do need those solutions. But I agree that the government is um, it's just not in the right direction that it should be um, as far as our Christian faith. 
Okay. Okay. So we're back live. A lot of good engagement in the chat. I want to go over some of these very fine comments and, and offer some uh, clarification and added discussion. I'm going to start on the YouTube stream. Now, Laura Hartley asked a question. Are ESAs always a bad idea? I've known them as a way of funding for college choice compared to an IRA for a retirement. I am so glad you asked that question, Laura, because you're right. Um, we have, uh, there is a way of saving for your child's education. And I do think those are sometimes also called ESAs. So I can see why there's confusion in the terminology. So these ESAs that we're talking about are vouchers and that's only for K to 12. What you're talking about, those kinds of ESAs that are similar to saving for uh, like savings accounts and IRA accounts is money that you put in. Um, and then it's, I think it may be like more like a mutual fund or something. We did that for our kids as a way of saving for college. And then it kind of grew over our children's um, as they were growing up. And then when it was time for them to go to college, my husband would cash them out a little bit each year to help cover their tuition. That's not what we're talking about. Okay. So I'm super glad that you asked that question. The ESAs that we're talking about traditionally have been called vouchers. And these are money that would follow the child from the government. The ESAs you're talking about is money that you as a parent invest in a mutual fund to save your money for your child's education. These ESAs that we're talking about for K to 12 is money that would come from the, the federal government or the state government probably. Um, and it would follow the child around. So hopefully that helps to clarify things a little bit. I want to emphasize the point about that the the main principle I'm trying to get at here is that accepting this money, even though it seems very appealing, and in some states they allow you to use it for Christian schools, religious schools, Catholic schools, that's very, very appealing. But what we have to understand, and I'm going to use an analogy to show you, to, to try to illustrate the kinds of strings that come along with this money. So a long time ago, decades ago, Christian colleges started accepting government money through like the Pell Grant program or through the Veterans Program. By accepting this money, this is what has facilitated the growth of many Christian colleges, universities, higher ed. But what I've seen in my research with the drift in Christian education over um, the last two years that I've been researching it, what I've what I'm starting to understand is that one of the major reasons why these colleges do not push back um, in terms of not allowing in the critical social theories, not allowing in diversity, equity, inclusion, it's because they are very married to this government money. If they were to to push back against DEI and say, we're not going to have those trainings, we're not going to do these things, the federal government is getting to very close to the point that they are going to require equity goals and require DEI trainings in order to get this money. 
I think that many Christian institutions are just getting the infrastructure in place in order to preserve their institution so that they can continue to receive this government money. And so what seemed like a good idea at the time when Christian higher ed started accepting this government money has now turned into an apparatus that the schools can't do without it. And so I think that we have to learn some lessons from, from what's happening in Christian higher ed. One very tangible example. I was on a call last week with two professors at two major Christian evangelical universities. And they work in the nursing programs for those universities. And what they were telling me is that in order for their nursing program to stay accredited um, by the national governing nursing body, they have to embed equity principles, equity medical ideas into their curriculum and to teach their students from that point of view. Well, if they were to not do that, they could lose students first and foremost, because the student would think, well, this isn't a real, a real nursing education. They could potentially lose the accreditation from the nursing board. They wouldn't be able to get their students certified. And eventually down the line, it could cost them scholarship money. So when we're thinking about ESAs and coming in and using them in the K to 12 context, we need to be very sober minded that what if we start building infrastructure based on this money, we are going to have to begin to bring into the curriculum some of the things that Kelly and I are going to be talking about in the next segment. So taking this money sounds really nice right now, <laughs> but um, let me tell you, in the next segment, we're going to start talking about what schools are required to teach, and that stuff is going to come into the schools. In fact, there was a comment on Facebook that they're seeing uh, social-emotional learning coming into the charter schools in California. So even if you're, uh, if you're homeschooling under a charter school um, situation, SEL is coming in. This stuff's only a matter of time before it comes into these other spaces. So even if you change schools or go to a charter school, go to a Christian school, a religious school, if you're taking this government money, eventually they're going to make you um, incorporate and embed these principles that Kelly and I are about to talk about. So the principle, the foundational principle I want to kind of try to persuade you to adopt is to not look at the money, but rather go underneath that and to talk about freedom. That as Americans, uh, one of our core principles, and this is, I think, a Christian principle, is freedom of association. And for freedom of association, we don't have the intrusion of government. And the government, there's no place in our 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 constitution that requires the federal government to be involved in education. So um, hopefully that uh, is some clarification. Now I want to say a quick word to pastors. So I get this question a lot. People are like, I'd love to homeschool, but I can't, I can't afford it. I'm a single parent. Um, you know, that sort of thing. Pastors, I want to encourage you to think creatively about how to put together a team at your church 
I'll bet that there's some teachers in there who are really tired of participating in DEI trainings in their public schools. I'll bet they would love to start to build a micro school at your church. I want to encourage you, instead of maybe having a building program, think about how you can make homeschooling possible for every family in your congregation who wants it. Let's start having some sanctified imagination and trusting in the Lord's provision on behalf of our families and our children to um, make this possible. Let's think about creative alternatives so that every family in the congregation who wants to homeschool can homeschool. Let's, Let's think imaginatively about how to do that. Okay, with that, we're going to go out and listen to the second part of my discussion with parent rights advocate Kelly Ski, and we're going to be discussing the connection between Planned Parenthood and your child's classroom. This is why um, I think parents need to think twice, think three times uh, before we start running down the path of uh, these education savings accounts because eventually the government is going to want to embed this stuff in every school. Let's take a look. Many people might have heard us mention on a previous broadcast uh, the issue of comprehensive sexuality education. Uh, We were going to talk a little bit more about this. We only touched on it in a previous podcast I want to kind of extend that discussion a little bit more. I know that you have been doing some deep dives into this. I follow Kelly on Twitter. If you're on Twitter, I don't necessarily always recommend Twitter. Um, It's kind of, it can be a a place that's a little damaging to your soul if you're not careful in how you use it. But there are helpful voices out there like Kelly's, and she is definitely worth a follow um, because of the quality of information and research that she reposts. But um, why don't we start with just a quick rundown of what comprehensive sexuality, I'm going to emphasize that sexuality education is, and how it is different than the sex ed that many of us went through as students in the late 80s and 90s. So let's just start with a definition there. Yeah, comprehensive sexuality education is a, uh, actually they have seven essential components that encompass all of the ideas that they promote in the curriculum, which is intended to eventually reach a mandate to be taught. They want this to be taught in all grades, K through 12, or even if they add on pre-kinder. And they want this in every state. So pre-kinder through 12th grade, all states. Sexuality is uh, a working definition that includes a lot more than what the previous sex ed was. So when sex ed was really introduced initially in schools, it was often taught in science classes to talk about human reproduction perhaps throughout your biology class. And it was talking about how human life begins and development and all of that. Puberty, life changes, anatomy, this kind of the science part of science and health. Yeah. Right. And then it, it shifted in the midst of talking to that. And then, and they started talking more about, um, 
birth control and uh, sexually transmitted diseases and all of those topics that expanded sex education. And a lot of times in the 90s and early 2000s, we had more schools wanting to pass out condoms and all kinds of things and have Planned Parenthood come speak perhaps in some of the schools. But comprehensive sexuality education, and if you want to show the the graphic, there is a framework of this that was created by the International Planned Parenthood Federation. And in that framework, these seven essential components, um, you can actually access this if you if you search this online, download it as a PDF if you want to view this. But on page four, um, one of the really important parts of this particular, oh yeah, this part's really important. Um, it says IPPF, so that's International Planned Parenthood Federation, hopes to bridge the gap between the world of safe sex and health services, which often draws on negative and condemning language and popular perceptions and personal experience, which often uses more positive language about pleasure and enjoyment. That's key right there. In particular, it is necessary, listen to this, to reclaim some of the language used within the commercial sex industry in order to represent safe sex as fun and pleasurable. So they say right there, they're talking about prostitution, commercial sex industry. Um, that also encompasses sex toys, all of those types of things. So, um, that- so now when you're saying that this is from the international planned parenthood, is this is the same entity as the abortion mills? I mean, I'm, I'm trying to understand, are you telling me that planned parenthood is in the business of structuring comprehensive sexuality education curriculum for our public schools? Like the same people that want to, that want to make money off of killing children. I I'm confused. Is that what you're saying? Absolutely. Yeah. They're, they're definitely shaping this. They, and their many allied groups that are global, um, and working with them is the United Nations, the world health organization, um, UNESCO, which is a offshoot educational offshoot of the UN, uh, all of these are very foundational to comprehensive sexuality education. And oftentimes they do link to the World Health Organization. And it's important to understand that trickle down because comprehensive sexuality education didn't even begin here, um, at least when, when it was legalized in California, it had been already occurring for quite some time in other countries. For example, I started looking in 2019 to the United Nations, the International Planned Parenthood Federation. But as a California mom, when comprehensive sexuality education was first required and made legal here, I wanted to see where it was really aggressive and intense. And so I looked into Toronto, Canada, um, as well. But this particular, if, if we go back to that document, there's some key findings. Uh, if you go to the next page or just actually just down a little bit further, um, right here. So these are the seven essential components, gender, which they believe is fluid, 
um, and on a spectrum. So that's key to understand too. When they say sexual and reproductive health, that's SRH in the acronym. And sometimes they use SRHR, which is sexual and reproductive health and rights. But this also includes HIV. Now, a lot of times I get questions on number three, sexual rights and sexual citizenship. And a lot of people say, well, what is sexual citizenship? And in this time that we're living in, where we're, we've heard plenty about critical race theory, and I understand that there's many different theories out there that exist, I started looking at this page right here. And I asked myself, I wonder if sexual citizenship is its own theory. And yes, it is. Oh, wow. um, it's about uh, approximately 400 uh, page theory in, in a book form. And it's very graphic and it has a lot of ideas that are rooted in um feminist liberation and, and other things that align with that. But this idea of sexual rights, um, they believe that children are sexual at birth and a big key component of CSE for short comprehensive sexuality education is to eliminate the idea of a gender binary. Um, a, a researcher who helped draft the National uh, Sexuality Education Standards stated in a presentation that they were glad that early elementary grades were introducing CSE, not even necessarily by uh, health class. And they stated that one of the goals was to remove cis heteronormative values and assumptions, um, or, or really, really to now cis heteronormative, that's a very big word. Um, that is the belief that, uh, somebody who is straight, which they refer to as cis C I S that this concept being normal throughout society that they want to get rid of. So they want to reach children in the early, early elementary grades before cis heteronormative values and assumptions become more deeply ingrained and less mutable. And that whole idea that gender is this spectrum and that there is a plus sign and that everyone has a um, sexual orientation and that everyone has a scale of the gender identity is all rooted in, in CSE. And then the fourth essential component on there is pleasure. And in the past, sexual um, sex ed was very much about, oh, and diversity on there you see is also important because the concepts that we do find in, you know, intersectionality are woven into CSE and vice versa. And also there is a component of social emotional learning. All of these subjects are very much integrated into one another, but the key with number four with pleasure is that in the past, kids were often taught how to say no. They were taught healthy boundaries and they were taught 
completely different. But this, because in, in the past, just to bring that out a little bit more, like right. in the past, children were taught, like, don't keep secrets, you know, the difference between okay secrets and scary secrets and, and, you know, that the parents were, you know, at, you could ask your parents for help. And these were like normalized ideas that that's not what we're talking about anymore. Correct. Yeah. This is very much driven from a focus that they believe in teaching children that sex is, um, pleasurable and here's how, and that, that emphasis is why we see that CSE has such graphic, uh, images and role-playing and games and videos and slideshows and more. And that's why at some point, I'm sure your listeners have heard of parents that are concerned with books that have made its way into the school system. And from these books or these um, different drag queen story time hours, for example, these are symptoms of an original source. Um, I mean, for us as Christians, we know that the original source is sin, but beyond outside of that, we understand that these ideas cultivated from International Planned Parenthood Federation and their original influences before that, which very much include Alfred Kinsey, et, et cetera. These, these ideas are very much encompassed, as it said in that document, commercial sex industry into comprehensive sexuality education. Um, and the next endeavor with CSE is that they do plan to move this into, I mean, they've been planning for at least five years, if not more, to turn this into a digital platform so that CSE can be delivered. So for parents listening, um, anytime your child is on an app or on online at all, um, they're using uh, certain social media influencers to promote these messages and they're, they're developing technology and apps to deliver this as well. And another thing that they are already doing on certain websites that are allied with this is they have a hide button. So for example, you're looking at a website and you're a teenager or younger, and perhaps it's like Planned Parenthood of, uh, you know, up in Canada there's a button you can press and it immediately takes you to Google's homepage. So it's, I think they call it. So if your parent mode. walks by, you just hit the hide button. You're, you're mm -hmm. on there exploring trans issues and uh, then you can hit the hide button. And I think that there's, there's also why there, there's this growing idea of the teacher being more of an ally than the parents. Um, it, it, it all, comes from this now <clears throat> because what people have to get their minds wrapped around <laughs> is the foundational assumption of something you said earlier. And I want to restate it because I don't want it to go by our listeners too quickly. The children are sexual from birth. So the idea of consent, for example, is the, uh, a key guiding principle for the ethics. So Everything is okay. Everything's on the table for sexuality 
as long as there's consent. And these um, programs, this curriculum will teach the child and condition the child. The consent is the highest value, the highest moral good. So it's not, you know, like what God's law says about um, sex being between a man and a woman. Now it's sexuality as something to be explored. And as long as there is consent, um, you know, that can look any kind of way. Um, so I want to refer people really quickly to other resources that we've produced. We did a whole podcast with Neil Shenvey on drag queens and queer theory. That's adjacent to the conversation that we're having right now. Monique and I read through many of the sexuality um, framework for the state of California on a past family meeting. So uh, people can, can see that, but all of this is tied into the critical social theories and it's all kind of interwoven together. So comprehensive sexuality education is simply the outworking or the praxis of queer theory ideas, which the heart of queer theory is to destroy norms. So mm -hmm. any norms that are out there, such as you said earlier about like being a straight, um, being straight sexually, that's a norm mm -hmm. from our culture's point of view. Now we as Christians don't say that that's just a norm. We say, no, that's God's design. Mm -hmm. uh, and, um, you know, so I think that we, we have to think carefully about this, but this is all embedded into the comprehensive sexuality program. This is the praxis or the outworking, in my opinion, of queer theory and feminist theory with a dash of critical race theory and intersectionality here and there. So um, that's what's out there. Is there anything else you want to highlight about CSE? And then I've got a few more, like more specific questions about it. But if you want to highlight anything else about the framework or international Planned Parenthood. Well, I will say that um, in my area where I live in um, central Northern California, I don't know what we would be classified as, but in this area, the Planned Parenthood clinics are transforming towards um, being in a place where they're providing, uh, you know, puberty blockers or, or, hormones, the, the transgender program at Planned Parenthood really started somewhere around the early 2000s, I believe. I, I, I think it was either, I think it was around 2005 about, and really now what they're working towards is getting to a place where, where children eventually will be making these decisions separate from parents in, in regards to, um, puberty blockers and all of those things. And this is encompassed in the idea of health equity. So when you hear that phrase health equity, that encompasses the, uh, these, these ideas about gender and sexuality. Um, when it comes to um, this idea of pleasure, it gets very graphic, very fast. Um, and, and I think the concern as well is we see Planned Parenthood advocating and they say that sex work is real work and they want it legalized. Well, in some documents, as far as there's a, there's a comprehensive sexuality education toolkit that 
says in there that they're going to teach under age 10, that there's different types of sexual activity. And in that list, they are including, um, commercial sex work and normalizing that in a list, um, to young children is a very big concern. Um, but also that big shift, like you mentioned, going from saying no to giving consent and consent is how to give permission. And then the role-playing that occurs in the front of a class often in a, a mixed student group of various ages, perhaps even with a guest speech speaker that the child has never met, it reduces their natural modesty and it's exposing them to a situation where they're doing and saying things or the students not participating are listening to peers do and say things that maybe they would not have been exposed to otherwise. So it I reduces- want to, yeah, I want yeah. to have Bob show it real quick on the screen. The second document that she sent over because it's, it's now this is another document from international Planned parenthood. This is called a deliver and able toolkit. We're going to scroll down to page 19 of this document because it hits on these issues. And then I'll let you finish your thought there, Kelly. But um, I want to look at right above the yellow highlight that Bob's got there. The first one is some relationships may involve sexual activity. Um, Sexual activity should also always be mediated by consent. This means that each individual agrees free from any pressure to engage in intimate relationships. And the second bullet point there that, that we've got highlighted sexual activity may be part of different types of relationships, including dating, marriage, or commercial sex work among others. So Kelly, let me ask you this question. Is this a setup well, first of all, what age is this for? Like, are we talking about high schoolers here? Oh, this is under 10. Yeah, if you scroll up a little bit, you it'll- scroll up just a hair. It'll give you Under the 10. Age. Yeah. So is this conditioning children to be sexual partners with an adult, which we used to call predatory behavior and pedophilia? Because that's what this sounds like to me, is that it's creating a setup in the child's mind. Though as long as I'm 10 and I have consent, I can have sexual expression with whomever. This sounds peculiar to me. Am I overthinking things here? No. And this is exactly why, in the same regard, the, the symptoms of this that we're seeing in society where it's not just these quote unquote family friendly drag queen hours that are, you know, have a family friendly label slapped on a very inappropriate behavior, especially for children. But it is that going back to that idea of sexual activity begins at birth. This concept is very, very concerning. And those drag queen story hours, there have been plenty of incidences where children are not just present handing cash to people, but they're also occasionally these young kids that are on stage or they're being taught how to be on stage at young ages. And so as we see that queer theory, they're not just against, they're not just about, as you said, removing these boundaries, but they're openly against any boundaries because they have adapted this 
spirituality belief, which is a whole other topic for another day, that in order to allow somebody to be their whole or authentic selves, that you need to allow them to freely express and, and identify with their authentic self. And it's, yes, I'm, I'm right there. 100% with you with CSE. It is, it is concerning and alarming that in my opinion, children are being robbed of the opportunity and the gift to have a childhood, a childhood that allows them to be innocent. I mean, I think of when I was little, I'm going to admit this. I listened to Rafi. I mean, when I was little and, and kids nowadays, they're being exposed to more and more adult content and adults are not having those healthy boundaries between themselves and children. And so this does set a stage for a very concerning uh, situation that we have. So in that I'm thinking about a couple of practical issues. I'm wondering, and, and, and I'm just going to adjust my tinfoil hat a little bit here because it might fall off after this question. But um, I'm wondering if you're seeing any evidence or anything in your research that there is some kind of a school to children's hospital pipeline that is emerging for these gender issues that well-meaning teachers, school counselors are targeting children that maybe they think are struggling or something with gender issues, referring them for to gender clinics for treatment. And that in some cases this is happening behind parents' backs, but, but as long as the child has consent, that's what matters. Okay, I'm going to leave you on a little cliffhanger there. We're going to go back out to uh, hear the last third of my conversation with parental rights advocate Kelly Ski in just a minute. I hope you're enjoying this. I've been watching the comments on the live stream. You guys are super engaged, and I appreciate it. And um, I just want to ask you again to make sure to share this stream with a friend. We had tried to gear the conversation so that even if there's a newbie, you've got a Christian friend who is just completely blind to the whole problem in public education. Our hope was to create a resource for you to share that would potentially open people's eyes to really see what's going on. And I know it's going to be tough for them to, to believe that plan international planned parenthood, wait, is bringing curriculum into my child's classroom, but all the receipts are there. It's not hard to find. You can just go right on the international planned parenthood website, download these same documents that Kelly is showing uh, we don't need to talk about conspiracy theories because it is all out in the open for anyone who knows how to use Google. So our hope is that you will share this show out, share this with your pastor, say, what can we do to help pull more of our kids out of the public school system? And likewise, what can we do to empower the Christians in our churches who uh, are working in public schools to be more informed so they can be good missionaries in those 
spaces. That is why I do this sort of thing. That is why we have these conversations. Kelly was really trying to keep it sanitized because basically the end goal is that International Planned Parenthood wants to turn our kids into perverts. And um, we're going to do everything we can to expose this and to shine light in a dark place. But we really need your help to get that word out there and share this show. So let me take a look here. Um, so yeah, great, great engagement for on, on all the streams. Um, we're going to go right back out to my conversation with Kelly in just a minute. I just want to tell you really quick about my friends at Birmingham Theological Seminary. You know, some of you know, I have been looking for advanced theological education that is both biblically faithful and very accessible and affordable. And I couldn't relocate in order to work on my doctorate, but uh, that's why I became a student at Birmingham Theological Seminary. And I just want to tell you more about them because I know some of you are wanting to get a little bit more education and this might be a cost-effective alternative for you to get more training. The classes are solid, schedules are flexible, and the tuition really is ridiculously affordable uh, due to their donors and church partners. Uh, BTS is officially uh, affiliated with the Presbyterian Church in America, but a lot of the students there are like myself. They're more in the Baptist tradition, very friendly toward Baptists and conservative Presbyterians. The professors at BTS are intensely committed to being biblically faithful. Um, but what I love about it is that more than 90% of their professors are also actively engaged in ministry. They're not just these ivory tower academics. They are out there trying to serve and minister in the real world. Um, and you're going to get a solid academic program but you can stay in your location to do the things that God has called you to do. If you want to go check them out, go check out my friends at Birmingham Theological Seminary. See if what they are offering might be a good fit for you. Well, as we go back out, we're going to now hear the third part of the discussion with Kelly Ski. Here's where it starts to get crazy. Candy came on the Facebook stream. She's like, I'm late. And I feel like I fell into some bizarro world. What in the world are we even talking about? Well, if you thought international Planned parenthood curriculum being embedded in your child's classroom uh, is crazy. Wait until you hear the last third of this con conversation. We're going to talk about what's next. Where is this going and what is the next wave? So keep, uh, keep putting those comments on the stream. And when I'm going to come back one more time and address any remaining questions or comments you might have. Okay. Here's part three of my conversation with Kelly ski. We're going to talk about the whole child model. Sounds pretty. It's not what you think. Here it is. Is there any sort of thing that you're that you're um, that you've run into that seems to be kind of a pipeline between schools and these emerging gender clinics? Yes, the whole school, whole community, whole child model. It is um, the acronym that they list is WSCC, even though technically I understand WSWC. Um, but 
they pronounce it whisk, like your kitchen whisk that you would cook with. And what this plan was really developed in the 1980s, but it began with what was called coordinated school health programs in the school systems. But in um, the early 2000s, it was, well, 2007, it was officially said to be initiated by the Center for Disease Control and an organization that currently goes by its acronym, ASCD. It formerly went by the name, the Association for Supervision and Curriculum Development. So the Center for Disease Control, CDC, joined with ASCD to create a combination of health and education for equity in K through 12 schools. And this, so we have it on the screen here. So I'm gonna have Bob go back a page to the homepage. So everyone can see the, the um, whole school, whole community, whole child is pronounced WISC. And this is another program. So if we're thinking about trends of where we're going, is this kind of the next, the next wave, the next thing that's coming here. Absolutely. Okay. This, this is being well integrated into California and they call themselves community schools or healthy schools, both interchangeably are used. Um, this so if model- we see that phrase, should that be like a red flag for us? Cause that sounds pretty healthy schools. I want, yeah. I want healthy schools for my kids. But you're telling me that's a that's a pretty phrase that is a it's a it's a flag for something deeper a, a framework. Yeah. Okay, it's it's the equivalent. You're being we're all being marketed to is the best way I can describe it. Imagine okay. you're watching one of those infomercials and you know that the reviews are really bad on this product, but it, it's you're being marketed to is the best okay. way to say it. Um, these these models, um, just like that idea of whole child, um, whole child is an ideology. It's holistic in its description, but it's also this um, very big initiative. And it is not solo to the United States. Again, this goes back to the World Health Organization and the United Nations again, but the this model intends to have schools, public schools, be as the nucleus of every community. So I'm going to have Bob scroll down a little bit because mm -hmm. there's a interesting graphic on this, on this page that illustrates what you're saying. So the, the school is now becoming the nucleus, you know, for the child and providing that healthy, safe, active place. That's, that's kind of how this is wanting to reorient us. Is, is that right? That's correct. Okay. And so the government is really taking a, a role in what they say has been a negative focus solely on academics, education, and now they're going to be focused on those other components that are included, the nutrition and health services. They intend to have uh, health clinics on campuses to be partnered with community organizations, which these community organizations 
especially in, in really in order for their already taught beliefs in social, emotional learning or, um, critical theories and, um, some of the cultured beliefs they may pair with community activist organizations for the purpose of equity or racial equity or fill in the blank. Um, the other thing that's, that's important to notate on that is that there's 10 key components. And the very last one on the list is parent engagement, which yeah, sounds let's go really, to the, I want people to see these 10 things really quick. Sorry to keep interrupting family. you. I just yeah. want to, I want to make sure that people are getting this. So we got physical education, nutrition, health education, social, emotional climate, physical environment, health services. Now really quick sidebar. Would that include having an on-campus planned parenthood? or something of that nature, some yes. kind of services to that effect. Yes. And, and again, I'm and, adjusting my tinfoil hat here a little bit. Like, you know, am I conspiracying it up a little bit too much? But that's immediately what came to my mind is if these entities are all in partnership, it would just make sense to me. There would be some kind of reproductive health clinic on campus. Right. And, um, uh, governor of California, Gavin Newsom's um, wife, Jennifer, she recently shared to Instagram that she was touring a community school health center. And she did admit that they do include reproductive health services. And that is, um, it's important to understand the definitions of these terms and what that includes. And you also, it's really important for everyone listening to know, um, I actually put together, it was 25 tweets long and I alphabetized just, just to show everybody that this is occurring in different phases in every state, some States, um, not as significant yet, but it is increasing and it's being implemented. And it's, it's all part of this idea of having safe, healthy and inclusive schools. And the schools are now they will have social workers on campus once these reach full intended fruition. Um, there also is already a plan in place that is currently voluntary, but this is to me a red flag because they talk about uh, teacher home visits. So right oh now, so we're going to turn teachers into quasi social workers and, and psychologists now. Yeah, and they really want real social workers on campus. Um, they do believe in including psychosocial, emotional support. Um, you know, that's a very big topic as far as social, emotional learning and all of these ideas that really encompass the ideology of the whole. And we might hear whole child, but there's also, you know, whole school and whole community. It's a holistic model, they say. Um, but beyond that, there's whole health, there's whole institution, whole of government approach, whole society. So this is a very big research topic in and of itself that embraces ideas from uh, a lot of new age thinkers. In the mix of this model, the WISC model, is also um, ideas from Abraham Maslow's 
hierarchy of needs. Um, but there's, there's many different ideas and theories that are included in this model and how it applies. And really, um, it's a concern because parental rights are being eroded rapidly and the government from everything I've witnessed is really putting themselves in between a parent and their child. And those ideas that, you know, we've heard in society, in culture, a lot of people have said, you you know, I I think it's been such a big movement in the last 10 years, this idea of self-care, but what's really already being um, messaged is the idea of self-care for youth by youth in other countries. I've already seen this being applied or messaged out there. And so this idea that it would apply to a choice between a child and the doctor, maybe right on campus. Um, There is a virtual healthy school that I recommend on that website. Everybody go into, I don't know if you guys want to get into that now or not, but no, we probably don't have time, but we can, maybe we'll have you back at some point and do a deeper dive on this WISC model, but this at least gets it on people's radar that, you know, this is something that's up and coming and people go follow Kelly. She's always tweeting about these things and you can um, get connected by that. I want to start to draw our, our time to a close. This has been a great conversation. We've covered a lot of topics, but this kind of takes me back to the beginning of where we started in talking about educational freedom and the biblical perspective of parents taking the lead. Um, what you've outlined for us is what is happens when we allow the government to take the lead. Um, no longer is it just about going to school to learn how to read and write. This is a completely different worldview. This is a worldview that is in contradiction um, to the, the historic Christian faith. Now, traditionally, I've, I've told parents to make use of the opt-out forms for um, social emotional learning and that sort of thing. But based on our conversation today, I'm thinking maybe my mind is kind of shifting about that because those opt-out forms might not be enough because this these ideas sound like they're being embedded in the whole school culture and there's no there's no opt-out form big enough to to do that am, am i am i off track there or what are your thoughts about that you're absolutely right i had actually done a social emotional learning public records request And part of the training for teachers was all about starting every class through the lens of social emotional learning. And a lot of this also includes a tremendous amount of data collection on your child that there is really no regulation over. So uh, surveys and health data and all kinds of things, um, that, that is all embedded into this. I mean, we're seeing, for example, social emotional learning in embedded into the updated soon to be approved math framework for the state of California, for example, but this is happening throughout these ideas of these critical theories and critical social justice and social emotional learning. I had created this 
this triangle actually to show parents that these social emotional learning, critical theories and comprehensive sexuality education are all subjects that are integrated within one another. But those, if you were to imagine all of these concerns we've discussed today, those three would form the foundation of a home. And then with the WISC model, that would be your home where all of your basic needs are met and the parents are really the government. And so it is important that everybody know what's going on and then really try and decide what you can do to um, make, make that freedom. That, this is why everything I've seen up until this point, as, as you can probably understand, this is why even though I homeschool my two children, I, I can't just in my opinion, I don't want to stop because there's so much going on that most parents are unaware of. I mean, even recently I was looking at something that was advertising world-class education. And that sounds really, really good until you start to look into, well, what is world-class education? That's very vague. It's very general. It sounds really good. But then I looked into it And there's a whole document on this from UNESCO, again, back to the UN and Bill Gates was um, talking about this plan and it, it coincides with this international baccalaureate model. It's very interesting, but it is important that we look at phrases like whole child and really pause and go, wait, what does that mean? And is there more to this than meets the eye? Because when I first heard actually this idea of whole child, it was sitting in my child's principal's office in 2016. He said, well, Kelly, social emotional learning, we're educating the whole child. And I kind of thought of of it as, as maybe other parents might like all of the child, all encompassing. I didn't think, oh, there's Sigmund Freud in here. And there's a little bit of Yuri Brofenbrenner or Lev Vygotsky or Abe Maslow. I, I, you know, those are just some different names that have come up in my research, but there's far more to that. Um, so when you look at something that you see in your child's school, um, you'd be surprised what you can find with a simple online search. Mm-hmm. So when we think about this, one of uh, maybe a practical piece of advice for parents could be to encourage their children or instruct their children not to participate in data collection. Um, so if data collection starts happening, if your school wants to fill out a survey or a health report or whatever, that the child just instruct your child not to participate in that and, you know, Mom or dad will talk to the teacher if it's a problem or whatever. But I think that that's just sort of a baseline of what you can do. You can go ahead with the formality of filling out the opt-out form for SEL, but just know that this is increasingly being embedded everywhere. It's in the culture. It's in the, the air the child breathes in the school. And so there's really no opt-out form that is going to truly opt them out of this ideology and that there is an attempt to shape children and their their thoughts about the world in a particular kind of a way um and that there's intentionality behind that man there's so many things we could talk about i hope to have you back again soon kelly this was a long discussion i hope people 
we'll persevere to the end, but a lot of good information. Thanks so much for doing this with me. Thanks so much for having me. And I want to encourage everyone to go follow Kelly on um, Twitter. You can check out her Substack, a time to stand dot substack.com. She's, I know she's prepping some new content for that. So you can follow her there as well. And um, yeah, this has just been a, a really eye-opening discussion. I know people are going to have many questions. Hopefully they'll reach out to you and um, we'll just continue the conversation. Thank you so much. Thank you, Krista. Okay, some of you are texting me. Those of you who have my number, you're like, wow, this was a lot. I know, that's why we called it the education mega episode. And, um, you know, I know that this, uh, I had one text here that says, this is absolutely horrifying information. Lord have mercy on our children. Uh, I agree. Uh, it is horrifying. Hopefully it's... Uh, it's a prompt to pray, but it's also a prompt to become more active. I hope to have Kelly on again soon to give us all a training on how to go to a school board meeting. Uh, she's got a lot of thoughts about that. She takes a lot of phone calls about those issues. And so uh, maybe we'll do that. Maybe we'll have her uh, come unpack more of the implications of the WISC model that's coming. But um I talked to Kelly after we turned off the recording about one point that I want to make sure to make here is this data collection that's happening in schools. And I talked about this on the original emotional social learning stream that I did last spring, this data collection that's happening. Sometimes it's called a health survey and, and all this kind of stuff. One way to fight back against it is to really uh, instruct your kids not to participate in these data collections. But Kelly and I are both of the opinion that a lot of this ESL, comprehensive uh, sexuality education, uh, the WISC model, whole child model, all this stuff is is creating a foundation uh, and the data collection is creating a foundation for what will eventually become a social credit system, much like China has. And that the UN and uh, the World Economic Forum and all of these entities are working together to create, you know, what they see as being a virtuous way forward. And so um, when we, when I talk about things like, the school to gender clinic pipeline. I, I, I think that stuff is real. Um, I know somebody who is a, um, you know, a novice, uh, a uh, reporter who investigative reporter who's been looking into this and has the receipts to show that there are school districts that actually have agreements with gender clinics of how they will funnel children to them. And so this stuff is real. This is not, um, Again, these are not conspiracy theories. This stuff is all out in the open if you just use Google. This is not things that are hidden. It's just you have to know where to look. Uh, as we draw things to a close here, I'm going to uh, take a look at a few comments. I want to go to the CFBU, um, uh, let's see, Facebook and uh, Candy says, this has really been a standard strategy for all these leftist theories. Everything is so embedded so that you can't quite pinpoint it. And so they deny it when confronted. It's like critical race theory. We don't teach critical race theory, but the, the tenets are in 
every class. And, and that's exactly right. It, they make you feel like you're trying to pin down a cloud because every time you try to say like, like this isn't right, then they rename it something else. So that's why I do these streams to help raise awareness and uh, get these things on your radar. Um, I'm going to go out to the theology mom Facebook page. Uh, Libby says, my heart is so burdened, definitely spending more time to pray on my next moves. That's great. Libby. I'm glad. Um, my friend Laura says, as we found in this election, many parents don't care to understand that that hurts my heart so much. And that's why I hope that all of you will stay in a conversation with those people um, to win some and uh, use this stream. I hope that it will be some uh, resource that you can share with others who um, need this information and that is this will be eye-opening for them. My friend Alicia Moss, who um, works in a charter school context with a lot of homeschoolers, she says, this is the grossest form of overreach and most parents have no idea or don't care to ask questions. Lord have mercy on us. These children are in our stewardship and our care. And as we said at the very beginning of the stream, um, the biblical position is that you are the leader of your children. So please, I'm begging you to uh, take that seriously. Take advantage of our guide. Just go to the centerforbiblicalunity.com. Sign up for our weekly digital newsletter. You're going to receive a free download. It's a guide to education. You're going to get a crash course on all of these issues. Um, and that is a free resource you can get. Again, just go to centerforbiblicalunity.com. Wait two seconds, fill out the little form. You're going to get amazing resources in your inbox every Sunday morning. And you're going to get the free download of the um, go-to guide from Center for Biblical Unity on education. Uh, let's see, Diane Smith on uh, Theology Mom Facebook also has a comment about primary sources. She says, this kind of stuff goes all the way back. Uh, just go search for the Rockefellers General Education Board, the occasional papers written about 1912-ish. Um, and she's absolutely right. There, there's nothing new under the sun. These are things that have been brewing for a hundred years. It's just now we're finally kind of getting it all out into the public. So again, this is the mega episode. I hope you have found this helpful and um, that you will share this out with a friend, with your pastor and to stay in the conversation with people to try to raise awareness about these things. Thank you so much. Happy election night. We will see you soon. Remember, God is sovereign. Jesus is king. He's the king of kings and nothing escapes him. And I hope that you have a blessed evening. God bless and good night. Thanks for joining us. Make sure to subscribe to the Theology Mom podcast and add your review. You can also follow Krista at Theology Mom on Facebook and YouTube. 
Join Krista for more theology adventures on the All the Things Show, co-hosted with Monique Dusan. Thanks for listening.